MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, October 26th. This is episode 93. I am fresh off the plane from (laughs) the District of Columbia, hanging out with my fans, the chief of staff or the second gentleman. I'm I'm Allison Gill. With me as always is a real life lawyer and real life friend, Andrew Torres. I am the incredibly unworthy Andrew Torres, uh, just, just basking in the shadow uh, of the the glory that is uh, Allison Gill, that no, that is super super cool. I'm incredibly jealous. Uh, you know, nobody invites me to the White House, but it's fine. It's fine. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, they, if if we were going to have a representative at the White House, I'm glad it's you and not me. So, <laughs> and just to clear up any rumors, I know that the right wing media is going a little bit crazy about having all of those folks, all of those Twitter people. Up at the White House, we were there, we were invited to the White House to get policy briefings on the amazing shit that the Biden administration is doing. Uh, I told them, Andrew, hey, you know what we have? And because like an EPA guy came in Mm -hmm. and uh, started talking about all of the amazing climate shit that's in the Inflation Reduction Act, but how they had to roll back like 200 Trump era policies in order to, you know, pave the way to get that stuff done. I'm like, you know, we have an entire podcast dedicated to that kind of thing. It's called Clean Up on L45. <laughs> they were, they were, uh, they had a good laugh uh, at the title, but it was, it was a wonderful vac- uh, vacation, vacation. Really, honestly, it was. <laughs> this we is how people to, like you and I relax. <laughs> <laughs> we got to tour the White House and we got policy briefings yeah. so that we could, you know, so that we could spread the word and, and be more uh, accurate and clear in our messaging for the it, midterm. So. And, and look, this is, this is a good thing, right? That, that, um, one of the areas in which we have been critical of the Biden administration is uh, not doing a great job in touting its successes and in in messaging. So I think reaching out to folks who do that sort of thing is uh, is really good. Of course, you know, the, our listeners can expect you to stay uh, independent and uh, and and as sharp witted as ever. There was no you didn't sell your soul to. To go out to the White House, but um, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> like yes, and we did not get paid. Yeah. There was no Soros check. Oh, waiting for damn us it! At the, I want my Soros uh, at bucks. the at the deep state <laughs> information yeah. desk. Yeah, but it, it was it was a great time. I had a really wonderful time. I got to see my friends, Officer Dunn, Officer Gannell. I think Fanon was out of town, but uh, I you know I got to I got to see a lot of my uh, very good friends, and so it was it was a wonderful time. 
Um, nothing. There's really no story there other than I got to go to the White House, which is that's, quite cool. That's its own story. <laughs> and um, we have a pretty cool episode today. Uh, and uh, Andrew, you and I are going to start doing <gasps> a bonus, a, a new second bonus cleanup on aisle 45 for our patrons uh, at the $2 level. Yeah. And so it's, you know, just to support us and say that you love us and uh, get ad free episodes. That's a buck an episode at the $2 level. You will get twice as many episodes. We are going to be hanging out, having a discussion mid, you know, between main episodes. And if, if you're a patron at the $2 or more level, you're going to get access to that bonus content. And I'm really excited because there's so many come come <laughs> Thursday. There are so many questions I have about what we talked about on Monday that came out Wednesday. So uh, it's going to be really fun. yeah. Things break so quickly, and you know we've been looking for a way to uh, deliver value to our patrons and you know support them for supporting us. So uh, this is going to be a little midweek uh, break. You and I will get together and kind of update. Uh, talk about what's what's been breaking. I'm really really excited about. It. I mean, you know, anytime I get to spend uh, hanging out with you is uh, is uh, always time well spent. Um, and uh, and speaking of patrons, do we have some? New ones? <laughs> we do. So uh, pretty good list here. So uh, thank you all so much. Uh, this is if you sign up at uh, patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod that's a-i-s-l-e-4-5 p-o-d you guys do that uh then uh you will uh, you sign up at any level you'll get the shout out here sign up for a buck that that uh, gets you the ad free version of the show tells us you love us uh sign up at two bucks you'll get the uh, bonus episodes uh anything above that is uh you know the benefits are spelled out on the webpage. so with that in mind thank you to doris d hill rick seam gene miller Canon Matthews, non-judge, non-FSW, love that. <laughs> Philip Broneman, Cheryl Homan, Alan McNamara, Marianne McIntosh, Bailey Bond, Jared Kell, Steve Strom, Cassie Molfatas, Leslie Schooneman, Christopher Peterson, Aaron Hutton, Tom Pope, Eric Balch, Charles Colson, Jan Diggs, Kevin Hicks, Sionitus, Secular Idealist, Jenna Balix. Hey, our good buddy Don Ford, voice of fantasy and adventure. About time, Don. Gates, super <laughs> you got me. Super califragilistic expialidocious Schadenfreude. Um, I like that. Camille M. Cesara and Julie uh, Julie Carell. And and finally, thanks to the only way I can afford to have Andrew speak on my behalf. Well, you know, you got what you asked for. So thank you all <laughs> so much. He just retained you yeah, for a dollar. There you go. I will, I will read anything on the air within reason for a dollar. So there you go. No, seriously, That's thank awesome. you all so much. You make the show go. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about, uh, mostly today, <laughs> is going to be my live reaction to the Navarro filing. Now, <laughs> I have not, on purpose, I have not yet read this filing because I wanted Andrew to watch me react to it as I read it live and I wanted you all to hear it. So that's what we're going to do with the Navarro. You filing. picked a good one. So uh, let's do that. But <laughs> I imagined, yeah, I imagined it couldn't be uh, any better or worse than any previous Navarro filing. Um, and then, but before we get to that, Andrew, can you tell me, explain to me why I shouldn't be freaking out 
about the Clarence Thomas decision to continue to hold Lindsey Graham's testimony pending appeal to the Supreme you, Court. You shouldn't be freaking out about this. Um, look, we will tell you, you know, a la The Simpsons, like, now is a perfectly good time to panic. Um it, it's Clarence Thomas, but 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 remember, right? We saw Clarence Thomas did not stick his neck out uh, for Donald Trump in the Eleventh uh, Circuit, um, and where the balance of the I'm concerned, like you are, but where the balance of the rest of the court is sort of strongly against him, um, you know, you're not going to see Clarence Thomas use his um, administrative powers riding circuit uh, in such a way that. Um, uh, is going to get him obviously uh, and viscerally slapped down by the rest of the court. So here's what happened, okay? Um, this case uh, went from uh, the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Georgia uh, and then uh, went up to the Eighth Circuit and then um, is uh, currently, uh, there's a petition for certiorari before the Supreme Court as to whether and to what extent Lindsey Graham should have to testify before Fonnie Willis's grand jury. What Clarence Thomas entered Monday as we are recording this, um, October 24th, 2022, on the court's administrative you know, shadow docket is an administrative stay, okay? And what this what this does, and and I've seen, you know, a week tossed around, but but basically we've talked about this before. What you do is you enter an administrative stay when you want to preserve a party's right to file an appeal, because if you don't stay the proceedings, it will become moot. And so Lindsey Graham was set to testify, right? And so if he testifies and then has an appeal pending to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court is like, well, it turns out you didn't have to testify, but, you know, right, like that completely moots, you know, his civil rights. And so what you do is um, you, you enter in a very, very, very brief stay when you recognize that, you know, this is a non-frivolous question. And, and look, you know, Parenthetically, as we have followed this through the courts, this is a non-frivolous question, right? Like, you and I are firmly on the side that Lindsey Graham should have to testify uh, and that this is an abuse of the speech and debate clause, but this is not a ridiculous claim to make, right? Like, it, it, the, the the Supreme Court, uh, when they adjudicate the case on the merits, if, if they take it up, um, is going to, uh, you know, kind of narrowly circumscribe, and they're going to be clear about sort of where the limits are of, of how you can compel uh, an elected official to testify before a grand jury about the stuff that they did that, that bears some connection to their job. So um, bottom line is, don't don't freak. I know it's Thomas. I know it's the Supreme Court. <laughs> it could still go badly, and if it does, we'll tell it you. It could. Um, it could go badly, but, but this isn't the bad. This part. is this is preserving the status quo for a week uh, for the DOJ to file an opposition and to say uh, no. There is there's absolutely no reason for the Supreme Court to get involved. This is not a threat uh, to the speech and debate clause. This is not going to open the floodgates. Uh, you know, for every member of Congress to have to testify everywhere at all times. Like that's not going to happen. This is a limited circumstance of somebody who was doing something not related to the legislature while calling up his buddies, and it's in furtherance of a critical criminal investigation. Um, 
you know. And even Lindsey Graham's have rights. Yeah, they they do. And and the flip side of that, right? Remember, we have seen time and time again. Look, I, don't get me wrong. This Supreme Court is garbage. It's the new Lochner era. You don't need me to tell you all of this. But this court is not dedicated to the personal qualities of Donald Trump. This court is dedicated to the principles of judicial conservative, right-wing conservative activism. And one of the principles of right-wing conservative activism is that um, criminal investigations are compelling state interest, right? So, you know, you are playing into the wheelhouse uh, of this conservative court. So um, I I don't, uh, you know, I'll tell you when it's time to panic. Now is not the time to panic. No, it's not. Uh, All right, up next, Astros sweep the Yankees to reach the fourth (laughs) World Series in six years. Uh, I just really wanted to get in there that the Yankees lost. Okay, at least we can agree (laughs) on it's always good. (laughs) And I love to bring out my sportscaster voice, Andrew. Yeah, that's that's almost a Vin Scully there. That was that was pretty good. Uh, It's uh, baseball season and uh, that means it's hot dog season. (laughs) Farmer John's hot dogs. <laughs> Hiding outside, ball one. <laughs> now, back to the action. Yeah, no, I, I just, I really just wanted to bring up that the Yankees lost. Ah, and somebody it. else who's about to lose, Pete Navarro. Let's Yay! Let me, I am now <laughs> opening up. Pete Navarro loses in four filings. Um, <laughs> let's take a look. I Again, I have not seen this yet. Okay. So, defendant Peter K. Navarro's opposition Shh. to the United States motion for summary judgment. Remind us before I dig in, what did the DOJ submit as a motion for summary judgment on? So what happened was um, uh, earlier, uh, in fact, on August 3rd, uh, the uh, DOJ filed a single count complaint against Peter Navarro, alleging that he has possession, custody, or control of various presidential records, which belong to the United States, and under District of Columbia law, including, uh, I love it when we get old-timey terms coming up to this, the law of Replevin should be recovered and delivered to the United States. So this is what I accidentally referred to as a writ of Replevin. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I got a bunch of emails saying, it's not a drug for gout. Okay. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's Replevin. That's okay. And I was like, okay, thank you. I, I'd never heard the term before. It excited me as much as when I first saw rid of mandamus. Yeah. You know? So, so here we are. Uh, basically he had a bunch of, uh, documents on his proton mail account from his time working on covid about you know hyping hydroxychloroquine and and all sorts of other bullshit they are presidential records he's admitted to having them his lawyer has admitted to having them and the doj wants them back they they filed a lawsuit to compel it and they ignored him and admitted that they had the records and so finally they filed right a one count uh, well, there's a, second, there's a second count involving federal common law that I'm not going to begin to explain because you don't care. It's, it's, a, it's a single allegation, common allegation that says, hey, um, you have emails on a private server. God, where did that seem so familiar? Anyway, uh, oh, yeah. that mm-hmm. relate mm-hmm. to official government business, and we want those back because they are under the law, presidential records. They belong to the United States. They do not belong to you. Dr. Peter K. Navarro. 
You know who didn't yeah. get a writ of replevin? Yeah. The email lady. Yeah. <laughs> That's who didn't. We have a we have a long-standing patron uh, on opening arguments that is Ben Gazi and the buttery males as as if it were like a you know seventies uh, lounge group and uh, it's just that is it's fun. so clever but yeah no that that I'm just a reminder of what an utterly ridiculous travesty that the. Uh, 2016 yeah. presidential election. So, okay. Um, so let me let me, let me me dive in yeah. here. The narrow question before the court is whether the PRA provides the U.S. with any vehicle by which to compel the provision of records it concludes are subject to the act. What? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> let, let, let me give you one, one more piece of, of handy uh, kind of back information, which is uh, the United States filed its complaint seeking the writ of replevin. Give us back our stuff. And um, co- uh, roughly contemporaneously therewith, right uh, in late September, uh, after uh, after the answer, after um, Navarro moved to dismiss, uh, the the U.S. filed for an early motion for summary judgment. And basically, what they've said is, look, th- there there are no fa- this isn't going to trial. There's nothing that we need to resolve as a factual basis. We just need to know the law, which is he's got stuff that belongs to the United States. And he should have to give it back. Yeah. And it sounds like he's about to argue that the law shouldn't be used to execute the law. Um, <laughs> it goes on to say the act provides no such vehicle because Congress did not intend for the United States to utilize the PRA as a weapon. Oh, here we go. Against those persons who become political opponents of the current administration by virtue of their past service. Oh, my God. Oh, he's being canceled. Uh, in this case, Dr. Navarro was one of the longest tenured members of Donald Trump. Yes, we know. He served. He start, started on day one, January 20, 2017, through January 20, Most people would not be proud of this, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, he's bragging about that. As the direct, I didn't, I didn't resign uh, like everyone else did, mostly. Uh it said, uh, Director of National Trade Council and Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy Coordinator in furtherance of the United States' response to the COVID pandemic. Now, the current administration has weaponized the PRA by enforcing the PRA? I, I, um, <laughs> by seeking to compel his production of records that the United States knows would inculpate him. So you are correct, right? Like, the, the gravamen of the argument here is you cannot enforce the Presidential Records Act. Um, wait, 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 wait. It goes on. Though. Look, at it says seeking to compel his productions of records that the U.S. knows would inculpate him with respect to accusations of willful noncompliance with congressional subpoenas. So, is, are, so are they saying not only uh, are you trying to enforce the law, but by doing so, you would show that we broke other laws? So <laughs> at the, the core argument that is being made here is the argument that by turning over the documents, you are effectively providing uh, the equivalent of testimony that you've maintained documents that are that belong to the United States, right? Which is itself a, a, a records keeping crime, an 18 U.S.C. 2071 crime, right? And so the the idea is that just as you have a Fifth Amendment right not to be compelled to incriminate oh. yourself, right? It would incriminate yourself 
to turn over the records that you agree belong to the United States. Um, but this is says non-compliance with congressional subpoenas, not not the lawsuit. Yeah, no, I I I get that, and I don't understand uh, the reference to congressional subpoenas, um, uh, other than. As uh, I think it has to do with the fact that he defied, he willfully defied the subpoena. He's been indicted for that. Sure, sure. That that's a two USC one ninety two. This has absolutely nothing to do with that, right? Like, I mean, did, but but what they're arguing, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm not saying what is right or correct in the universe. I'm saying <laughs> what they're arguing is that handing over these records would inculpate him. Would would you know? be an admission of guilt in the willful noncompliance with the January 6th subpoena. He, he, he's, he's, I think what he's saying is if I hand these records over, I'm saying I'm guilty in the contempt case. So, but the problem is, so, so two things, right? And let me, let me just be clear. The reason why I've said that that's rhetoric is that the reference to congressional testimony appears only in the introduction and not in the body of the argument whatsoever. And the reference to subpoenas shows up again under the privilege section, but producing these documents in no way is relevant to the elements of 2 USC 192, right? Two, but it might be. But but it's not. 2 USC 192 is just, did you get a subpoena requiring you to testify before Congress and did you willfully ignore it? Right. Or produce documents. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, and this, I think what he's saying is this makes me look guilty in the non, non-production non of documents. Right, but he's already count. violated the same, I guess, I guess you could say, if it's if he's it's two counts. Yeah. <laughs> he's already yeah. indicted. He's already indicted on it. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm giving him more credit than his argument deserves. Uh, and I didn't think that the fifth applied to documents. Um. So we, we're going to, I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, oh, okay. But, but. Um, so it's interesting in the sense that I'm giving him way more credit than this argument deserves, uh, because also, uh, there is a potential argument of, um, that, that he faces future life. And this is really where where I thought this was going, but I I actually, you've, you've persuaded me, um, that, that this incompetently (laughs) refers to, uh, the second, to USC 192 charge. It could also relate to a potential forthcoming 18 USC 2071 charge or uh, or 371 charge, right? Like um, that in is this case for withholding these for records. withholding these records, right? And so yeah, and obst- maybe obstruction, but I mean that's that's pretty that's a 20 year that's a pretty big hit for just being a dick. Yeah, um, and I don't think they would they would move on that, and you know particularly as we look to the operative legal standard. But yeah. So that's the argument. The argument is I can't give back your stuff because if I gave back your stuff, that's effectively admitting that I had the stuff and part of the criminal charges that are pending against me are pending against me for not turning over stuff that I had. And so I would be admitting effectively, right? That's why he uses the word inculpatory there. Uh, I would be effectively admitting to an element of a crime. And and and, and so let me say, right, uh, at, at, uh, right off the bat, when I first read this, I had two thoughts, right? <laughs> the first is I, I had the thought regarding, you know, analogous to um, uh, John Eastman saying, 
you know, I was compelled to give biometric data to open up my iPhone, right? So that they could take the stuff off my iPhone. Um, and, and there does feel like there's a little bit of a, uh, of a oh. fifth amendment kind of thing, right? Like if you cannot it's actually, it's actually not the contempt of Congress. It's the, the, the fact that he is under investigation by the subcommittee to investigate the coronavirus crisis. And he maybe didn't supply those documents that he was subpoenaed. Yeah to them. And that that's why I thought it was a it was a forthcoming 371 or yeah. or 2071 violation. But either way it doesn't I mean the the analysis is the same either way, right? And mm-hmm. that is Right, right. It's still, you know, criminal contempt. Yeah, and that is on the one hand, you could say um I I I get this as as sort of a, a larger extension of the Fifth Amendment, right? Like if I if I can't be compelled to testify against myself, how can I be compelled to deliver evidence against myself? That that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But at the well, same time, right? Because the Presidential Record Act uh, Records Act re- requires right. At the same time, <laughs> the the idea that like no the. <laughs> The proper in interpretation and enforcement of the Presidential Records Act is we can never get the records back because every time we find somebody with the records and we ask them to give them back, their agreement to give them back is itself admission to a crime. And so therefore they don't have to do it. You could probably see that that, that would become you know a, a self-referential circle of nonsense. Um, and, and indeed that that is, that is the case. Like when you, when you delve into the case law, um, the, (laughs) it's, it's very weird. Navarro's lawyers call this, uh, the act of production privilege. Um, if you go, if you, if you type active production privilege into Westlaw, uh, you, you, you get very few hits, right? Like it's not, it's not a separate privilege. The question is, for purposes of invoking your Fifth Amendment right, right? Because remember, the Fifth Amendment protects you from being compelled to give testimony that incriminates yourself, right? Right. And and I mean, if he, you know, if we applied this to what was going on at Mar-a-Lago, it would be that, that then Donald Trump could have filed a lawsuit when he got the May 11th subpoena saying, I can't give you classified records because that would inculpate me in espionage 2071, <laughs> if, you know. Like it just no, sorry, Charlie. Yeah. But I mean, it's an interesting argument. It, it is, and and so in a technical legal sense, um, what what the 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 question that gets presented to the court is is this act that we are compelling a kind of testimony, right? So making you say stuff, right? Making making you write out a confession. That's 100% testimony. Very, very clear that that's what that is, right? Yeah. But what about, like, you know, when you have to blow into a breathalyzer, right? Well, you know, that, that the, the states have come up with kind of a, uh, a convoluted Im- implied consent, uh, you know, to sort of get around those thorny problems. What if, you know, staring into your phone to unlock it? What about, uh, you know, giving blood, those sorts of, right? Like, all of these things fall into kind of a gray area. Returning stuff that doesn't belong to you does not fall into a gray area. <laughs> it is very, very clear uh, 
Uh, well, the go Department ahead. of Justice should just file a lawsuit and ask for a special master to be appointed. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So um, it it goes. It says here the, the United States seeks to assert that the Presidential Record Act, Presidential Records Act, creates such an obvious distinction as to what entails presidential records that should be turned over to the archivist of the National Archives Records Administration, and that Dr. Navarro pursuing an audit that lasts longer than a month is unreasonable. Okay. It's pretty fucking clear. The Presidential Records Act it, it has to have four things, right? It has to be documentary material. And that's a very broad definition. And they list books, correspondence, memoranda, documents, papers, pamphlets, works of art, models, pictures. I mean, they list like everything in it. Then it has to, uh, the term presidential records means those documentary materials that are either created or received by the president, the president's immediate staff, or a unit or individual of the executive office of the president whose function is to advise or assist the president. That's Pete. Yep. By title. So, I mean, these are presidential records. And and this is the provision immediately before the 2203 that, that describes what happens to presidential records at the expiration of a president's term, which Navarro does quote, suggests there's some ambiguity. I would say, I, I, I think he's crazy. But 2202 is unambiguous. It could not be more clear, and it is one sentence long. It says, the United States shall reserve and retain complete ownership, possession, and control of presidential records. And such records shall be administered in accordance with the, provi- uh, the provisions of this chapter. So, the, so yes, the, therefore an audit that lasts more than a month yeah, is unreasonable. You're holding on to my <laughs> shit. That's that ultimately, like that's what the U.S.'s argument boils down to. It, it is, the, you think about the United States as a person, like a literal Uncle Sam, Imagine there's a law that says, hey, your emails belong to Sam, and then you're Peter Navarro, and you're like, yeah, I'll go, eventually I'll give them back, but first I got to like, you know, go through all, I got to do a review, and that's going to take a couple of weeks, and Sam's like, but it's my shit. Give me back my <laughs> shit. And that's what this, that's what this lawsuit says. That, that's what a writ of Replevin is a writ of, give me back my shit. And this, this this filing says, I'm not going to give you back your shit. Because if I give it you back your shit, it's their shit, it admits yeah. that it's your shit. And you could later use that in a criminal proceeding against me. <laughs> the only problem. Because I'm being investigated by the subcommittee for, uh, in the coronavirus thing. Right. The only problem with this argument is every single case that they cite in connection with this supposed active production privilege. Right, and when I say every single, they cite three. Uh, but look, like, hey, that that's a that's a big plus for a lot of Trump lawyers, right? They cite a 1976 Supreme Court case, Fisher versus United States, in which um, an individual was forced to turn over tax records. <laughs> they cite an Eleventh Circuit case called In Re Grand Jury Subpoena Deuces Tecum, uh, in which um, an individual was required to turn over. Uh, hard drives with child pornography on it. And they cite uh, a case actually from this circuit, a fairly recent, fairly, 1993, um, uh, United States versus Dean that is in the D.C. circuit. Um, and and so that is the law of this circuit interpreting the law from Fisher. And 
the DC Circuit really couldn't be more clear than this, right? In this prior case, we held that government records do not belong to the custodian, but to the government agency. Their production thus falls outside the Fifth Amendment privilege, which is a personal one. The district court, <laughs> Dean then took the position that all of the documents in their entirety were personal. In conduct, after conducting an in-camera review, the lower court rejected her position, ruled that they were government records. She then turned them over to the government. Subsequently, the grand jury indicted Dean on 13 counts of criminal misconduct, alleging that she used her influence at HUD to gain uh, federal grants for her clients, family, and friends, accepted money from private sources, and, and all that information was derived from the documents she gave back. Right, So exactly Ooh. analogous to this case. And what, what the D.C. Circuit held in, in Dean's case was uh, reaffirming that first rule. Hey, you do not get to claim a Fifth Amendment testimonial privilege over stuff that's not yours, okay? But here's the flip side of that. And they, and they extended another case called Braswell. Um, uh, I'm not going to go in. It's, it's, not, it's, it's really, really tangential. It's another Supreme Court case um, involving uh, the production of records. And what they say is, look, the government can't use the specific act of production against you in a criminal trial, right? So that's how we kind of square that circle. We say, yeah, guess what? Fifth Amendment doesn't apply when you're talking about stuff that doesn't belong to you. Give Sam back his shit, okay? This is what this, is what this court is going to rule. They're going to say, um, Sorry, uh, Dr. Navarro, as you insist on being referred to in all of your pleadings. Uh, Dr. Navarro, you're going to have to give back the documents. Um, in a very narrow sense, uh, no, the government may not use your act of giving those documents back against you, right? That's the, that's the benefit that you get uh, under existing case law. However, and again, I'm going to go back and quote from Dean here, Although the independent counsel may not use Dean's active production against her, he may int introduce testimony that the documents she possessed are HUD documents produced by HUD in response to a subpoena. So, in other words, right, when you are returning the documents, you're not acting in your own personal capacity. You are acting in your official capacity as the current or former custodian, right? So... Dean had the documents as at HUD. You can't use that against her personally, um, but you can draw the inference uh, that <laughs> HUD returned the documents. Yeah, and and so here, I, I can't, Navarro is just such, in this weird position, right? Like ordinarily you'd think you'd be dealing with an HHS official or a CDC official or something like that. You know, he was the, um, you know, director of the White House National Trade Council uh, and the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy, um, you know, tasked under the, the coronavirus task force. But, but you can use that fact corporately against that governmental entity uh, on whose behalf Navarro was acting if that makes sense. Um, I don't think that's going to be relevant here. but Well, yeah, and that comes up again in the argument later on in the filing. I'm, I'm sort of reading ahead. I'm cheating. I got in trouble for that, by the way, in Catholic school. <laughs> I was turning the page before we were finished reading it aloud, and I would get whacked on the knuckles by nice. Sister Concilia. Yeah. Uh, I still read ahead, so ah. F you, sister. Um, <laughs> so where the, are you? The argument, I'm on, by, on page four, bottom of page four, yeah. argument. 
Uh, first, before we get into the, the thing that you're talking about, you know, with regard to what his position was, it says the statute does not make Dr. Navarro responsible for the management and custody of presidential records, which, first of all, no one said that, nor does it set a hard deadline for when any presidential records must be turned over. Yes, it does. Yeah, that that is just I, I, I flagged that before. Right. Like that. That's just such a bizarre argument to make. Um, we, we've seen it uh, repeated, right? Like Trump made a similar argument in the Naralago case. Um, 2203G1 is about as clear as you possibly get, right? So I read you 2202. It says presidential records are presidential records. They belong to the United States. They're Sam's, right? But um, then there's the reality of, okay, there's Sam's talking about like when you're the president, you know, you, you might be using those documents, right? So there's, there's, it's not like every time a word leaves the president's lips, it's locked up by the archivist, right? So A through F describe what a current president does with presidential records, right? And the, and the, the procedures that go with it. G1 applies when you have Trump, when you have a president who loses, who's an outgoing president, right? Upon conclusion of the president's term of office, the archivist shall assume responsibility for the custody, control, preservation of, and access to the presidential records of that president. Okay. Yeah, and listen, listen to their argument, though. They say- <laughs> shall is our mandamus word. That's a must. Yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. It says, similarly, the United States provides no support for its theory that PRA has any hard deadline. And they cite 44 U.S. Code, Section 2203, presidential records are required to be turned over to NARA no later than the end of the administration period. But they go on to say, the PRA, however, plainly provides no such deadline. It just did. (laughs) Uh, Instead, the relevant section, they're saying only G1 is relevant, states only that once a president leaves office... The archivist of the United States shall assume responsibility for custody, control, preservation of access to presidential records, and the archivist shall have an affirmative duty to make such records available to the public as rapidly as possible. Then they say, therefore, any assertion Navarro has missed some deadline uh, is incorrect. Yeah, but they but they make <laughs> no argument as to. I, no, it's like they don't know what the word "shall" means, right? Like, so uh, this legal pleading is nonsense to try and read it as charitably as possible what they're saying is there are no implementing regs that say everybody who works for the president who has presidential records has to turn over those records by x deadline that's they didn't even they didn't even make an argument that some contest the president didn't lose the election they they could have thrown that in there uh, who who the hell knows but but like here's what that's analogous to right it is, it is analogous to saying, like, okay, if there's a posted sign that says speed limit 25 in the parking lot, right, and you're going 26, then yeah, you can be ticketed for going 26 in the parking lot. But suppose there's, there's no... nowhere that says that you can't go 26. Right. Suppose that it there's no speed 25. limit sign. Right. No, no, no. But let's, again, let's, let's, be as, let's be as charitable to them as, as possible. There are no implementing regulations in the CFRs that say you got to give it over within a month of, you know, the president leaving office or whatever, never minding that we're two and a half years out. Right. Like, but, but, um, <laughs> the, 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 you know, two years out, right. Um, never minding that. Um, it, it, it would be if like saying design, because there's there no speed limit 25 sign in the parking lot, I can go 130 doing donuts and fuck you. Right. 
Because the answer to that is it's still against the law to drive recklessly in the parking lot. And that's the standard that applies under the presidential record. And it's very, very clear. And we have lots of laws like that, right? We have some laws that attach a number to things, right? You must go. You may not exceed 65 miles an hour on the highway. Great. But we also have you may not drive recklessly, right? And and here it says, we just read the sections to you. It says um, presidential records are the property of the United States throughout, uh, and that upon the conclusion of a president's term, the authority for control, custody, possession of those records passes from the president immediately to the archivist. So even if your argument was, okay, well, during the administration, Navarro probably shouldn't have had this shit on his email server, clearly. But you might say, hey, uh, the president is in charge of active presidential records during his administration, and he directed me to serve it on my Proton Mail account or whatever the fuck he's got, right? That's fine. He's not president anymore, and that has passed to the archivist, and the archivist is now saying, give me back my stuff. That's how simple this is, and that's how tortured and ridiculous their arguments are. Yeah, and they even say uh, here on the bottom of page five, as was stated in his motion to dismiss, Dr. Navarro remains adamant that he will turn over any presidential records in his possession once the audit <laughs> is complete and any risk that such a production serves to incriminate him has been alleviated. I forgot they asked for immunity. Remember? Yeah. Yeah. You don't get to say, I'll give you your stuff back when I'm done with it. If you don't punish me right. with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, then argument B, the statute is ambiguous and most of the statutory sections have not been interpreted by the court. Well, great. Guess what? It's about to be yep. interpreted. I did look court. like that's true. I, it, I mean, I would I would pass very lightly over the section because, yeah, we haven't had a president try and steal records before. <laughs> um, this argument uh, that the the, the uh, semi interesting textual argument. Uh, is that Section 2209, uh, which is about um, creating or sending uh, presidential records, does not use the word retain, um, right? So in other words, um, yeah. yeah. And they say that because it was added in 2014, it has yet to be interpreted right. by the court. Of course it hasn't, right? <laughs> we, we've, only had, we've only had the one president since then. So, yeah, yeah. buckle up, Buttercup, because uh, it's about to it's about be to interpreted be. Yeah. by the court. Um, and, um, and I think that's very, very clear that the argument is uh, that they violated 2209 in that Navarro created a presidential, a lot of presidential records, right? These emails setting forth government policy, they're very clearly presidential records uh, without um, subsection two, forwarding a complete copy of the record to an official electronic messaging account uh, at, within not later than 20 days after the original creation or transmission of the record, right? So that's all you have to do, right? Remember, like, let's take a step back. I, I, I know it's hard to remember because these people are so, like, the apotheosis of both evil and stupid at the same time. Well, the Presidential Records Act was not meant to be a trap for the unwary. It really, all it's meant to do is to say, hey, we, we want to make sure that we recover 
everything that is an official record of what the president did during their administration, because that belongs to the people, because, you know, the whole democracy thing. And so all this section requires you to, it doesn't even say you can't use your super secret proton mail account. It just says, yeah, if you use that to message, you know, Donald Trump and be like, hey, we're getting some brewskis for the game tonight. Cool. You do you do you. But if you use it to say, hey, we get some brewskis for the game tonight, and by the way, let's recommend ivermectin for people who are suffering from COVID, then you have to make a <laughs> copy of the fucking document and give it to the archivist. That's literally all you have to do. It could not be more, you know, it could not be easier to comply with. Uh, and of course, these, these, this band of crooks, liars, thieves, grifters have, have managed not to. No, right. Um, they argue also that replevin is not the proper action. And you know what, Dr. Pete? I agree. <laughs> I think a search warrant is the proper action. And you're fucking lucky to be getting a writ of replevin <laughs> or replevin. Excuse me. Uh, I do and, love the uh, way you say it. Yeah. <laughs> replevin. Buy now. Ask your doctor if about you replevin. have an erection that lasts longer than four hours. Replevin <laughs> you may not a, be for you. If you have a dick that stores documents <laughs> for more than two years. Um, and here's their argument. Listen to this. They say the U.S. asserts without citing case law, substantive case law, uh, and we're here on page, uh, middle of page seven, yep. uh, that the action, replevin, is clearly the appropriate method for returning wrongfully withheld presidential records, setting aside the obvious observation that Congress itself did not include any vehicle by which the United States could seek the return of such records. Yes, it did. It wrote a fucking law about it. Nearly every single case cited by the United States is either distinguishable from this action or poses more questions than it answers. <laughs> That's a weird way to we write go. that as a lawyer. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the U.S. cites Hunt v. DePut. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a case from 2010, which they say, and this is I'm reading from the Navarro filing, which ultimately held that the property at issue had been abandoned and thus could not be subject to wrongful withholding required that the wrongful withholding, which is required for uh, replevin. Similarly, the United States cites dicta from U.S. v. Zook, which is a very cool name, and U.S. v. Uh, McIlvaney. Mm hmm. Uh, for the, the proposition that replevin is an appropriate action under those facts and circumstances. Um, however, the U.S. states, the U.S. sued a private collector for a map previously owned by Kennedy. The court in McIlvaney did not analyze replevin or find that it was an appropriate action, instead denied the motion to dismiss the action based on the basis that Kennedy's deed was a valid instrument and clearly demonstrated Kennedy's intent to provide the map as a gift to the United States, United States. What? So <laughs> let me shortcut kind of through all of this, which is yes, one of the please. things that lawyers do is argue by analogy, right? Like, for example, suppose you have a case on hand that says um, a non-compete that's three, that requires you not to compete with your prior employer uh, for three years is too long, and we're going to strike that down. And then you have a non-compete that's three years, right? You don't have to go to court over that because the law is 100% clear, right? Like, you, you just show that single case, uh, and, you know, if they if they filed a lawsuit, like, then you get an immediate dismissal or an immediate early summary judgment. You're like, yeah, the law is settled. Three years is too long. But what happens if your non-compete is... Uh, you know, two years and eight months, right? What you do is you you 
file your non-compete saying that you file your lawsuit uh, seeking a declaratory judgment that the non-compete is, you know, violates public policy. And you would cite, you know, uh, uh, you know, Target v. Gill and you would say, look, in Target v. Gill, they said three years was too long. Two years and eight months is almost three years. So you should hold. And for the same reasons that they held three years like that's just it's an it's an undue it's an undue interference with the employee's uh right to make a living that the skills decay after three years if if your skills decay after three years they've they've decayed after two years and eight months so you know that's that's the kind of arguing by analogy and then when you distinguish a case right you would say oh but the difference is right in target v gill that was a non-skilled job and this is a skilled job right so that's how good lawyering works um, when you are arguing by analogy and then distinguishing the case. Mm. It comes off okay. as desperate and stupid here because ultimately, <laughs> yeah. like, their arguments are just, well, we haven't had a Replevin case involving property of the U.S. government before. Well, yeah, because we haven't had people who stole shit with both hands I'd on like the way I'd like to argue before. that we haven't had somebody uh, recommending horse paste and injecting bleach right. and writing emails about it yeah. in a pandemic and hanging on to them. The courts have never, you know, I mean, pff, there's no case law about that. And, and there isn't. But again, right. it's not, that's going to land. Because we've been lucky so far. Right. It's going to land on the <laughs> deafest of deaf ears uh, in the court. Yeah. Because what the court is going to say is very, very like you just cut through all of this congress created a statutory scheme that vested the united states with a property right i just i read it to you 44 usc 2202 sam owns those documents and unless they specifically change the law when we say you have a property right what that means is you're entitled to all the other laws that enforce your property rights and guess what replevin is one of those laws right it says Hey, if you've wrongfully taken my stuff and I want to get my stuff back, I can file for a writ of replevin. And um, and, and and no, that's not what that's for, Andrew. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, the counter getting argument your stuff to that back is, isn't about getting your stuff back. Yeah, come on. A, 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 any argument to the to the contrary would have to deal, right? Especially the like congressional intent portions has to get over the hurdle of like. Well, what does it mean to say the United States owns those records, right? Like you're, and 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 this is how. If I were the DOJ, if I were replying to this, and DOJ, we know you're listening. I I, I would begin with forty four <laughs> USC twenty two o two, and I would say the United States owns these records. The force and, and thrust of of Doctor Navarro's opposition is to contend that the United States, that while the United States owns those records, it has no mechanism by which it can seek the return of those records, and that uh, somebody who has wrongfully appropriated those records, that the property of the United States can, at their own discretion, conduct their own subjective audit for as long as they want with someone else's property. That's not the law. And yeah. I, I suspect we're going to see something very similar to that from the, from Pro the probably, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's just the weirdest argument. Yeah. Um, <laughs> skip, skip the federal common that, law bit. Uh, <laughs> and to, to say that that Congress didn't intend, like they intended so much that they wrote a whole fucking law about it. They and they intended so much that they that they used broad, expansive language. That is exactly they right. They intended so hard, bro. It, it, <laughs> they wanted this to be a property right, which is uh, uh, among the most powerful rights you can assert. 
at, at, at law. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Now, you said skip the federal common law part, but I, 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 I was going to ask. <laughs> okay. Um, because it says that the federal common law is narrow and doesn't apply uh, here to save the United to save the United States complaint. Um, <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, they're like as if they threw it in sec, you know, uh, to to you know to just in case their presidential records argument didn't stand up to scrutiny of how it's written. Um, so they they kind of did right like that. That that's why I mean I said skip over it. It's, it's a really like challenging doctrine uh, because. Although federal okay, courts, but they didn't throw it in there to to save themselves from their terrible you know, it, PRA it's a, argument. It's a backstop. Like you always plead in the alternative, right? So remember when I told you that this was there was essentially one argument. There are two counts, and the second count says um, even if you don't think the Presidential Records Act specifically applies here under federal common law, any presidential records retained by Navarro should be taken from him and delivered to the United States and the U.S. should be awarded damages and amount to be determined at trial, right? And and so although federal courts, right, under Article Three are courts of limited jurisdiction, um, they, they do establish a narrow body of federal common law. Um, it, it's it, it's a it's an oddball kind of corner case, and the reason the U.S. cites this here uh, in its motion to dis- in its motion for summary judgment is as a catch-all provision um, that the court is not going to rule on federal common law, and so yeah. you know that's I, that's why I said skip over. But I'm hey, I'm always happy to do some extra law geekery. I will tell you, federal common law is one of those questions there you will do like two or three bar exam questions on it out of 200 uh, and then immediately forget because <laughs> it's just, it, it really is kind of a corner case. Yeah. And then on to page 10, we do, could we get to the part where you've already covered the yep. act of production privilege, which is what they are saying is the cause of the delay. So they're not wrongfully withholding documents. They, they are arguing they are correctly withholding documents because they're concerned about their, Act of production privilege, their Fifth Amendment for documents, right. right? And that's what I thought the most interesting argument was. It's why I tackled it out of order first at the beginning of this episode. Um, it, you know, it has some surface plausibility, but uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. And this is a this is a motion for summary judgment. Yeah. So they might actually say, "Well, we want to hear that argument," um, and not grant the summary judgment. Well, no, you know but I mean? remember summary judgment says there are no factual issues left to decide. So decide it on the law. So it, it, oh, to okay. the extent that it is a purely legal question, uh, the court can still can, can listen to this argument and still resolve the, the case on summary judgment. On um, the law. Okay. And again, I think that Dean K again, remember that this is a, uh, before the U.S. District Court, this is before uh, Colleen Kalarkatelli uh, at uh, DDC, and uh, I know for a fact, not knowing her at all, uh, I think I practiced in front of her once, but um, that she would like to be on the D.C. Circuit <laughs> uh, because everybody. <laughs> I'm just saying, don't be mad. I have seen worse arguments go forward. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Make yeah. it past. Make it past summary judgment. I've seen. Worse arguments. Yeah, and, and but but typically the way in which those worse arguments get through is if there is some possible factual inference to be drawn here, right? Like this is mm-hmm. this is a case that is ripe to be 
decided via summer. Like there's no, you don't need to conduct discovery. We know he's got them, right? <laughs> this is just, uh, Navarro has emails that are government documents. Uh, the law is super clear. He should have to turn them back over. He doesn't want to turn them back over. Uh, and, uh, so the government had to go file this kind of like creative replevin action. And, and my sole point on, on judge Calarcatelli is, you know, she would like to be on the DC circuit. USV Dean is a DC circuit case. Um, there's, there's, Nothing more persuasive to a district court judge than citing the law of the circuit court that sits above them. Uh, and mm. the law that of the circuit court that sits above them is, yeah, you're you're the custodian. You don't get to assert a Fifth Amendment privilege over stuff that isn't yours. But the government in a narrow way, which, again, this lawsuit does not seek, right? It, the government cannot use your production criminally against you. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's how this is going to be resolved. Navarro is going to be forced. Uh, she's going to grant the writ of her plevin, uh, and, uh, Navarro is going to be forced to turn over his emails to the archivist. Uh, and we'll see if he does. Do you think he'll get his immunity? I, I think what, I think what the court will say is, um, following Braswell and Dean, uh, the the government is prohibited from using the act of production of having returned those documents as establishing prima facie guilt uh, under uh, 18 U.S.C. 371 uh, or, you know, 2 U.S.C. 192. Um, but why, if he if he willfully withheld them from so, uh, pursuant to a subpoena, so why would you, they just you let would, him off the hook for that? You, but that doesn't let him off the hook. That means that you cannot use the fact that he voluntarily returned them as evidence. You could use the fact that they were in his possession as evidence. Right? Oh, oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Remember, it's very <laughs> well, nobody wants to do that yeah, anyway. <laughs> it is the, the 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 sole question, right? Is is this testimony? And the case law is really clear that, like, no, it's, 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 it, this is not testimonial. This is you returning something, you know, something that belonged to someone else uh, back to them, right? So, you know, think about that. Think about like being in elementary school and the teacher being like, I'm going to turn around and close my eyes. And if, you know, whoever wants to put the candy bar back in my desk puts the candy bar, I won't ask any questions about that. Right. But if the, if the teacher previously saw you with the candy bar in your backpack, then, you know, they, they can still use that prior fact against you. It is only the act of production, right? The act of returning the documents uh, for which uh, the court will say narrowly, uh, we can't use that against you. So, you know, you might imagine a case in which the government doesn't know that Navarro has these documents, right? And then, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling with procedurally coming up why they would why they would make an ask if they didn't know. But I, you know, it could it could happen, right? And so, uh, in that case, that would that would damage the prosecution. Um, this case, uh, not so much. So uh, Navarro's in a lot of trouble anyway. So, yeah, and, and for other things. Yep. Right. Uh, I'm I'm still really interested in what that Department of Justice subpoena for his records of communications with Donald Trump was about. Me too. Um, had nothing to do. Totally separate from the contempt case, from the subpoena, from. Uh, if it was a different grand jury. I'm, I'm really interested to know what that was about, honestly. And, and I, I assume it was about January 6th because, like I said, I am certain Meadows got one and Scavino got one. 
and uh, Bannon got one, and Bannon and Navarro told the DOJ to fuck off, so yep. they were indicted for contempt. And uh, and Navarro made public that other subpoena while while Meadows and Scavino either partly or fully cooperated with it. So it's 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 fascinating to tell you. I'm I'm really interested to see. And then and then they're like, well, we got your phone anyway, bro. Yeah. So we have your communications. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yep. <laughs> yep. <sighs> All right. Well, that has been the Navarro filing. I mean, it just, it, <laughs> but that was just, it ends in the conclusion there. Uh, but thank you for, for going over that with me. That was uh, it, very interesting to learn about in real time that his argument was that the law is not the law. Um, but the, the fifth, the fifth uh, thing for documents is pretty, is pretty interesting. Yeah. I thought again, it, it, it's, the, the the fun task of being a lawyer here with um, a, a party that just makes shit up uh, is trying to figure out what what their argument might be. And so, you know, so it's always interesting when they raise a question that you're like, OK, well, that's not that that one fifth of the arguments you raised in your opposition were not immediately frivolous, although it turns out upon the closest possible inspection, you know, just, like it turns out upon immediate inspection and reading the cases that there's an easy and elegant solution, which is, yeah, it's it's not testimonial. Of, of course, the U.S. gets to demand you give its stuff back. But there you go. Yeah, and here we are. Uh, it's going to be an interesting week uh, for the news. I know we're very, very close to the midterm election. That's mm-hmm. um, going to, be, I think, be the focus here in the lead-up, although there are things going on with the Deary case. There's things going on uh, with the 11th Circuit. Uh, but I know that I don't think Donald's reply isn't due to them until November 10th. Um uh, in in the Eleventh Circuit, with the, with regard to the uh, Mar-a-Lago documents case, um, uh, but there's still there's still plenty out there, and uh, we know everybody's pushing ahead in their investigations. We know Kosh Patel uh, just had to uh, give his testimony to the grand jury uh, with regard to the with the documents case, where he was a custodian and said that you know Trump just declassified them with his mind. So um, interesting things ahead for sure. And we will be covering all of it. Plus, patrons, you'll start to get those new bonus episodes um, as we as we make them yep. uh, and appreciate you so much. It's a, it, we wanted to we sat down, we put our heads together. How can we really thank our patrons? Because you truly do make this show possible. Absolutely. Yeah, probably starting next month, right? Starting uh, in, in the week and a half. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Right after the election, we'll start picking them up because awesome. that's when shit's going to start hitting the fan. There you <laughs> might be. Um, yeah, we're gonna. At we'll, least hopefully, we will. Uh, yeah, we will have recorded uh, cleanup the day before the election. Uh, that will certainly be an election episode. And uh, yeah, I think we we might want to do <laughs> a um, uh, coming together. And uh, you know what it. What did we learn? What went well? Please have things go well. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I think that's a great idea. All right. Cool. All right. Cool. Well, well I, I'll see you next week, my friend, and we'll talk about, well, I'm sure we'll be texting uh, as the week <laughs> rolls on. Um, but everybody, I hope you have a great rest of your week. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. And this has been Clean Up on Aisle 45.
Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.